Gracious Lord, like Nicodemus, we come to your word with many questions. Like the Pharisees, we can be captivated by correctness, intent on right answers. As we turn to your word, Spirit of God, do not let our desire for information dominate our need for transformation. Let us hear the word and be moved to greater faith and obedience. In Christ's precious name we pray, amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. It's on page 3 in your pew Bible. Genesis 2, 18 through 24. Hear the word of God. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Thank you, Scott. Well, if you've been with us this summer, you know that we've been taking a journey through First and Second Thessalonians. We have been reading and preaching straight through these two wonderful letters of the Apostle Paul. There's actually a term, a Latin term, fancy term for what we've been doing. It's called Lectio Continua. And it's the practice of churches simply reading and preaching straight through the books of the Bible. This goes back to the fourth century where church fathers like St. Augustine or John Chrysostom of the fourth century would read and preach straight through books of the Bible. Swiss reformers like Huldrych Zwingli and later John Calvin did the very same thing as a part of the Reformation of the 16th century to make church sure that the church receive the full counsel of God in its reading and preaching on the Lord's day. We do this because we're convicted by the words of the Apostle Paul, who in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, writes that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If all scripture is breathed out by God, or as some translations say, inspired by God, if all of it is good and inspired by God and used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, then we should read 
and teach all of God's word. It's kind of interesting to note, though, that many mainline denominations like the United Methodist Church or the Disciples of Christ or our old denomination, the PCUSA, well, they often promote the Revised Common Lectionary. The Revised Common Lectionary is basically a three-year plan where every Sunday there's a different reading from a psalm, a different reading from an Old Testament passage, a different reading from a gospel, and a different reading from an epistle. And they encourage you to, to go through the lectionary, and it's over three years you will read at least some segments of almost every book of the Bible. Now, in the Revised Common Lectionary, in fact, when I was a seminary intern at the Presbyterian Church of Toms River in New Jersey, they used the Revised Common Lectionary. So when it was my Sunday to preach, which was only twice in the year because I was a lowly intern, uh, they told me, you've got one of these four texts to preach. You preach on whichever of these four texts you want to use. So there's a little bit of flexibility there. But the idea is that you'll give an overview of all that the Bible has to say. But it's really interesting that in season year A of the Revised Common Lectionary, it begins to take a journey through 1 Thessalonians like we are doing today. However, it skips the passage of Scripture that I plan to read and preach today. It does not give you 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 12. It skips to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Now, what is it about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 to 12, that the Revised Common Lectionary does not want us to read it or to preach it today? Well, in the spirit of John Calvin, I'm not going to skip that passage. We're going to go straight through it. Now, admittedly, it's not a text that I would want to preach. I wouldn't choose it. However, it is the word of God. And we in the 21st century need to hear what it has to say. So to see what all the controversy is about, I would encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. It may be found on page 1257 of your Red Pew Bible. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as he pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you're the God who speaks to us through your holy inspired word. We pray, O Lord, that this morning we might hear from you, that you might open our ears and open our hearts, that we might be transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, listen to the word. Brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers and throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more 
and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now these first two verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 seem rather harmless. If you've been with us, you know that Paul has written this church to the church in Thessalonica, a young church, and he's written a a letter to them to encourage them in their faith. He is so proud of how they have held steadfast despite the, the persecution that they are experiencing for their newfound faith in Jesus. And Paul has been communicating to them how how he has longed to be with them, but he's been unable to do so. He sent Timothy instead to go and check on them and how proud he is of them to hear about how they're doing. Now, Paul begins to give some ethical instructions in these last two chapters of 1 Thessalonians. And the ethical instructions can be summarized so beautifully in what we read in uh, verse 1. It says, Where you ought to walk and to please God, how you ought to walk and to please God. That ultimately our ethics, our determining of what is right and what is good is, is it pleasing to God? I really like the way the NIV translates 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, this phrase of it. It says, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. In order to please God. In gratitude for all that God has already done for them, we are called to live in a way that pleases God. Now, I want to be real careful here. We're not saying that somehow the, Paul is telling the Thessalonians that they need to please God in order to earn their salvation. No, their salvation, as we know from the gospel that Paul has been preaching, has already been secured by what Jesus did on the cross. For Jesus, who was without sin, paid the price for our sins when he died on the cross. And as Jesus says in the gospel of John, it is finished There's nothing we can add to Christ's sacrifice. We simply receive it as the free gift that it is through faith. And Jesus has already conquered sin and death on our behalf when he rose again. And so he offers this salvation as a free gift we simply receive by faith. But this gift, this gift of grace, God's unmerited favor, this gift of God's love should lead us to respond not only in faith, but in in a genuine desire to please God. For when we love someone, we want to please them. We want to honor them. So how do we please God exactly? How can we honor God exactly? Let's keep reading. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I want to pause there just for a moment. We'll keep the slide up there, but just I want to focus on that word sanctification. It's a fancy theological term that can also be translated as your holiness. To be sanctified is to be made holy. Yes, we receive this gift of faith, uh, of, of salvation through faith, and so we are justified before God through faith in Christ. 
But then as the Holy Spirit takes resonance in our hearts, we begin to be sanctified. We become more holy. God convicts us of his truth through his Holy Spirit and through his holy inspired word. And we become more like Christ as we seek to die to ourselves and seek to submit to his will and to his words. Yes, God's will is that we become more sanctified, more holy, more like Jesus. What does that look like exactly? Back to our text. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. There it is. That's why the Revised Common Lectionary doesn't have 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 12 in it. They want us to talk about sexual immorality. The Greek word for sexual immorality is pornea. We get the English word pornography from pornea. This word can also be translated as fornication, and it's a very controversial issue in our day and age. So, so the church would, would, would assume that we'd rather not talk about that, but the fact is it was a problem in Paul's age, and so he addressed it directly. It's a problem in our age, and we need to address it directly, not avoid it, not ignore it. And I recognize, you know, there are some children here in our sanctuary today, and my son, John, is eight years old. He's downstairs, and he needs to know what the Bible has to say about pornea and how that's not God's will for us. In fact, I remember growing up uh, in Midland, Texas in the late 70s and early 80s. Anybody remember that period of time, late 70s? <laughs> so when you had a television, there were like four channels. I mean, I think we had 13, but technically only four really worked. It was like NBC, ABC, CBS, and PBS. And um, I was the remote control. My dad would say, change the channel. I'd get up, change the channel. And, uh, but television back then was, was very censored. They did not use the kind of language that you can hear on television today. They were very careful not to say too much. Yes, there were innuendos, but for the most part, television was pretty clean. And if you wanted to find pornea or pornography, you had to actually take and, and made an effort for it. I remember, unfortunately and sadly in my growing up, the first time I was exposed to pornography, I was in the third grade. I had a, I had a friend who had a dad who had some adult magazines and we stumbled across them and we looked at them and I was like, oh my gosh, overwhelmed by this. But today, it's much easier for children to find pornography than it was in my day and age. That's just turn on this. Get on the computer. It's too accessible. It's a problem. And if the church remains silent, we do it to the damage of our own souls. This was an important topic that Paul felt that needed to be addressed. And so we can't ignore it. We need to address it as well. Now, it's true that the Bible says a lot more about money and a lot more about how we're called to love our neighbors and and serve others than it does about fornication. But the Bible does not ignore the subject. His pornia can be translated as fornication, and fornication is to have sex. In English, it means to have sex with anyone other than your spouse. And the creator of the universe wants to make sure that we get this right, that we don't fall to the temptation of pornea. He wants us to live in a way that, well, that he designed us for. So what is God's design for sex exactly? Scott just read it. It's in Genesis chapter 2, the story of creation. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 to 24, we read about how God created uh, Adam and Eve and, and how he created Eve from the very side or the rib of Adam. And, and, and unlike Adam and unlike any other creature who had been created, Eve was created from someone else. All the other creatures at this point had been created from the dirt. Adam was created by the dirt. But then God takes a side of, of Adam, a rib of Adam, and he creates woman. And when he sees her, he goes, whoa, man, awesome. As we read a moment ago in 
chapter 2, verse 23, he says, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam recognizes his own likeness in this new creation, this, this woman. And the woman, unlike Adam and the other animals, wasn't created from the dirt. She was created from the side of, of Adam. It's a profound mystery that God takes this one man and, and, and from that one flesh, he creates another flesh. And then these, well, these two people come together. Mathematically, it doesn't make any sense because in math, one plus one equals, thank you. 830 didn't know. It was just silent. I was like, not hard math guys too, right? But in marriage, one and one come together and make one. Remarkable. It's a mystery of God. Genesis 2, 24 says it this way. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. For God, sex isn't just about procreation. It isn't about physical intimacy. It isn't simply about having a personal desire of that. Sex is about oneness, becoming one. To be one flesh means a husband and a wife, they share all of life together, the good and the bad, the wonderful and the challenging, the sickness and the health, the richness and the poorness. They share the responsibility of raising children. They share the stress of a, of a life, a home, of raising a home, and ultimately they share a bed. Richard Foster, the author of Celebration of Discipline, explains it this way, sexual intercourse involves something far more than just the physical, more than even the emotions and the psyche. It touches deep into the spirit of each person and produces a profound union that the biblical writers call one flesh. Remember, we do not have a body, we are a body. We do not have a spirit, we are a spirit. What touches the body deeply touches the spirit as well. God never intended humanity to have casual sex. Promiscuity was never a part of God's original plan. And yet in the first century Greco-Roman world and in American culture today, promiscuity is rampant in our culture. When I was in college, and this was in the 90s, the most popular television show was a show called Friends. It was about three attractive men and three attractive women who lived life together in New York City, and they were great friends. And they rotated roommates, and sometimes this girl was living with this guy, and and sometimes this girl was sleeping with this guy. And over a 10-year season, all six of them had been very promiscuous and had multiple sexual partners. Now, the television show was, was clever. It was funny, but morally it was... It was bankrupt. It was sad. Because we know that God created Eve for Adam, not Ethel, Evelyn, Ellen, and Erica. God created Eve, just one woman, for Adam. One woman, one man. That's God's original design for sex. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul makes it clear that our bodies are not meant for fornication, sex outside of marriage. For through faith in Jesus, our bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit. We are now united to the body of Christ. And as a member of the body of Christ, we would not want to unite our bodies to a prostitute, would we? Yet in the first century church in Corinth, things like that were happening because prostitution was such a big part of the culture. In fact, back then in the first century, Uh, men were expected to have multiple sexual partners. Yes, they had a wife whose primary responsibility was to to have children and to raise their household. 
But many of these men had slaves, and, and often one of the slaves would be his own concubine. And then he, he had a mistress, and they were encouraged to use the state-run brothels to help fund the building of temples. For the Greek gods were promiscuous themselves. They did not serve a faithful God like we do. Paul actually writes 1 Thessalonians from Corinth, and Corinth was like a a modern-day Las Vegas where sexual promiscuity abounded. But this should not be so in the body of Christ. We were not created for, for promiscuity. We were not created for polygamy. We were created for monogamy. Now, I know that there's polygamy in the Old Testament, but it never seems to really work out well, does it? King Solomon has 700 wives and 300 concubines, and yet it's his horrible, broken marriages that leads to the separation of the nation of Israel into north and south. David has multiple wives and children from those multiple wives, but ultimately it's controversy between his own children that ultimately tears his own kingdom from his rule at one point. Jacob has Leah and Rachel and then other uh, concubines as well, and that leads to the 12 tribes of Israel, but there's great feuding among those 12 tribes, among those 12 brothers, isn't there? Is God's intention was for one man, one woman, and the lifelong covenant bond of marriage, that's where sex is intended. That is God's best for us today. The best illustration I can use to think of this, of how sex outside of marriage is not God's best, is to think about it in the form of filet mignon versus spam. I gotta think I got a picture of spam here. Spam is a bit of a mystery meat. Some people like Spam. I know on the can it says that Spam is made of pork, but some water, a lot of salt, some potato starch, and sodium nitrates. Sex outside of marriage is a lot like Spam. Some people like Spam, but it's really not the best. The best is filet mignon. I think we've got a picture of that. Now that is a gift from God. Everyone, given the opportunity, would choose filet mignon over Spam, and yet in our culture, many people are settling for Spam. Don't eat spam. Wait for the, te- wait for the steak. C.S. Lewis says it this way in his book, The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We were half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The culture would tell us to make mud pies in the slums. But God wants something much better for us. That's why Paul is encouraging the church in Thessalonica to to seek what is best. That's why he he writes in verses 4 and 7 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 4 to 7, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. The Holy Spirit convicts us of all truth and the truth is that God's desire for sex is that take place between one man and one woman in the covenant bond, lifelong covenant bond of marriage. Anything else is less than God's best. Now if you've maybe committed fornication at some point, or maybe you're in a relationship that's too physical right now, know that within the body of Christ, that in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness, there is grace as we seek forgiveness and we seek to repent. 
The Bible encourages us to flee sexual immorality or that if we burn with passion, we should, we should marry that person and then continue to, to burn with passion because God wants what's best for us. And God's best is that sex would only take place between one man and, and one woman in the covenant bond of marriage. Dallas Willard points out that the opposite of lust is love. If you want to overcome the sin of lust, you need to pray and ask God to help you see others as God sees them, as God's children created in his very image, as your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Notice that after talking about sexual immorality, Paul then transitions to talk about brotherly love. The Greek word there is Philadelphia. Philadelphia, the city, the city of brotherly love, gets its name from this Greek word. I want to show you 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9 with the text, with the Greek in it. Now concerning brotherly Philadelphia love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to agapeo, which is the unconditional love of God, to love one another. You don't lust after a sibling, you love them unconditionally, sacrificially. That is how we please God and honor Christ, by avoiding sexual immorality, by loving others as he has loved us not with eros in mind, but Philadelphia, brotherly, sisterly love. In these 12 verses, Paul gives some basic ethical instructions on how we can please God. In gratitude for God's grace, Paul is saying that we need to please God by avoiding sexual immorality, which I've spoken about, avoiding gossip and avoiding idleness. Let's look again at verses 11 to 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter four. He says, aspire to live quietly, And to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. To say another way, Paul is saying, do not gossip. Don't talk about other people when they're not there because gossip destroys community. When I was younger, I used to think that as long as I don't say anything about someone uh, when they're not there and I wouldn't be willing to say it to their face, that should be okay. But I found that actually it's best not to say anything negative about anyone when they're not around. That if I've got an issue with someone, I need to follow the instruction of Matthew 18 and go and speak to them directly, face to face, not about them, but to them. One of the spiritual practices that helps us overcome the, the sin and the temptation to gossip is the, is the discipline of silence. To sit silently before the Lord in solitude and prayer. Have that regular rhythm of of your day that you would spend some time in silence and solitude. James, the brother of Jesus, says it this way. Know this, my beloved brother, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. As we practice silence, then we become more equipped to just sit and listen to people better rather than jump, jumping to judgment. And if someone is gossiping, then we don't have to feed that. In fact, if you don't feed the gossip, it will end. People won't want to continue to talk about others in your presence. Yes, in gratitude for God's grace, we should seek to please God by avoiding sexual immorality, avoiding gossip, and finally, avoiding idleness. As you read First and Second Thessalonians, we'll see that that was a problem in the church in Thessalonica, that there were people who, waiting for the return of Christ, had become, well, they, they had quit working altogether. They decided to live on the charity of others. And we can see that that is not God's will for us, that we were created in the very image of God, and our God is a working God who in six days worked and created the heavens and the earth, and then he rested on the seventh day. In the NIV, the Proverbs uh, 10, 4 to 5 says this beautifully. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. 
He who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. If we're not dead, then God's not done with us yet. God still wants to use us to help do the work of his kingdom. God has gifted us with different time and talents and treasures that he wants us to use, whether it be at our place of work or in our community or around the world to help point others to Christ. And that's what this is all about. Living in a way that pleases God, living in a way that points others to the reign of Christ in our lives. Yes, in gratitude for God's amazing grace, we should seek to please God by avoiding sexual immorality, avoiding gossip, and avoiding idleness so that we as the community of faith point others to the holy nature of God. For God created sex for marriage. God created our tongues for building up and encouraging others, not tearing down. And God created our bodies and our minds to help do the work of his kingdom, all to the glory of God of his name. So may we all seek to please God this day. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you're the God who has gifted each one of us to help do the work of your kingdom. Lord, we want to please you in gratitude for all that you've done for us. So Lord, help us to do so. Help us to avoid sexual immorality. Help us to avoid gossip. Help us to avoid idleness. Help us to serve others as you have served us. Help us to build up with our words and help us to use our bodies in a way that would bring glory and honor to you by working for you, serving you, by loving our neighbor as ourselves, by being a light of your love wherever we are. We pray this in the strong and